0: let's pray. Lord, we have already thanked you this morning for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that through that Spirit, you might speak through your word this morning. Take my words and speak through them. Open our hearts to the work of your Holy Spirit. And to his transforming power in our lives, that they might speak more and more of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may well be familiar with the words of Jane Austen. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. As we read Ruth chapter 3, we may well think that those words are true of Boaz. But what becomes even more evident is that a widow with no resources must be in want of a husband. So how does a woman living over a thousand years before Christ go about that? She certainly can't post a profile on Bethlehemmatchmaking.com. Moabite widow seeks godly man of good character, must be tolerant towards meddlesome mothers-in-law. In In chapter three, we learn that Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, thinks that she has the answer. But As we begin this story, I want to ask the question, where is God? As Joe read it, his name was only mentioned twice, in verse 10 and in verse 13. And we could look at Naomi's plan and think it's simply the actions of a scheming mother-in-law Where is God? It all sounds very human. Ruth Ruth is to wash and perfume herself. She is to put on clothes, which at the very least signal that she's no longer in mourning and available for marriage. And then it all starts to sound incredibly suspect. Ruth? Ruth? is to go alone at night to the threshing floor. It's a place that would be situated away from the main town of Bethlehem, downhill. She's to wait until Boaz is in good spirits, uncover his feet, and lie down. If we were to read it in the original Hebrew, then I'm told the words are even more ambiguous than they are in English. Just what are Naomi's intentions? There's clearly a possibility of Boaz misinterpreting her actions. She'll be putting herself in a vulnerable position. She'll be alone at night with a man who isn't her husband and who quite clearly have the opportunity to take advantage of her. Where is God As a woman, there's no way I'd want to walk down Rouen Road alone at night. And yet, here's Ruth going out in the pitch black of the night to a place which was sometimes frequented by prostitutes plying their trade. I know what I'd have said to Naomi if she'd have suggested it to me. And yet, unbelievably, Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. It all appears to be totally foolhardy. Imagine what it would have been like for Ruth. She'd have been waiting quietly in the shadows, her heart hammering with anxiety while she waits for Boaz to finish eating and drinking. What's going through her mind as she tiptoes up to him and lies down? And then comes the moment when Boaz wake startled. We've got those words. The man turned and discovered a woman at his feet. There are three possible outcomes. Those words, man and woman, instead of their names, Boaz and Ruth, just stops us short and reminds us that actually, Boaz has got the opportunity there to take advantage of Ruth. Or Boaz could see Ruth as an immoral woman and shoo her away. Or maybe he just might recognize that it's a request for marriage. However you look at it, it's totally unconventional. I suspect, as I look around here, there are very few women who propose to their husbands, if any, And yet, before women's lib, we've got a woman proposing marriage to a man, a Gentile asking a Jew, a younger person asking an older one, someone of no resources asking a landowner. How can God be in this bizarre situation? But I'd like us to step back and just look at those verses again. Is it possible that God's work is hidden and yet present? So let's take some time just to look at each of those three main characters in turn. First, Naomi. If you were here at the beginning of our series, you'll remember that at the start of chapter one, she was full of bitterness. She was all too ready to accuse God of bringing misfortune on her. It's Ruth who suggests she goes with Naomi to Bethlehem. It's Ruth, not Naomi, who suggests that she should glean in order to provide for them. And somehow, as Jonathan told us last week, Ruth just happens to glean in Boaz's field, the one person who has the potential to help them. And suddenly, she's not just thinking of herself. We find her praying for God's blessing on Boaz. She begins to realize that God hasn't forgotten her. It's not chance that Ruth chose Boaz's field. God is at work. And as her trust in God begins to grow, she starts to focus on Ruth's plight and not her own. She's already prayed in chapter 1, verse 9, that God will provide Ruth with a husband. Now Ruth's in an even worse position. She's a foreigner in the land of Israel. When Naomi dies, she's going to be left as a lonely, despised Moabite. She needs a husband, and Naomi encourages Ruth to push that door that God seems to be opening. She knows that when we start to see God at work, sometimes we need to have the courage to take that leap of faith. I wonder if sometimes we sit back passively, and we wait for God to be a bit like the insistent voice of my sat-nav in my car. As we seek God's guidance, he gives us signposts. He doesn't give us a satnav nav that shows us the whole route ahead of us. And it's as we follow those signposts by faith that our trust in God deepens and grows. Yes, of course Naomi's plan looks risky. But she's confident in the character of Boaz. And more than that, she has total confidence in the God she's already begun to see at work. His hidden hand is there. It's in Naomi's love and concern for her daughter-in-law. It's in her willingness to take a step of faith. <clears throat> and if we look at Ruth, we can see God's hidden work in her life too. You'll remember that in chapter one Ruth gives herself to God as she says your God will be my God and no we don't find words of prayer on her lips but her behaviour shows her living out that commitment to God in her everyday life. Her loyalty to her mother-in-law is amazing She does everything Naomi has told her to do, even though it puts herself at risk. Or at least, she does almost everything Naomi tells her to do. I wonder if you noticed where she deviates from Naomi's instructions. Naomi told her to wait until Boaz tells her what to do. But in fact, she takes the initiative and she says in verse 9, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. We all know that English can be a bit confusing. I'm sure our refugee friends would agree. We have words that have two meanings. I could ask you to cut your nails or to fetch me a hammer and nails. And the word that Ruth uses here for garment is a bit like that. In Hebrew, it's the same word, that she used for wings and in chapter 2 verse 12 Boaz prays that Ruth will be richly rewarded by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings she's come to take refuge so in fact what Ruth's doing is asking Boaz to answer his own prayer to be that source of protection for Ruth as he spreads his wings over her And there's a deeper meaning, too, because that phrase, spread the corner of your garment over me, was also a way of speaking of marriage. If you want to check that out, have a look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8 later. Ruth isn't offering Boaz a night of passion. She's asking him to provide a secure future for her, to marry her. She acts with total integrity. She infirms with her actions what Boaz affirms in words. She's a woman of noble character. And that's not just when she's in public. It's in those private moments when no one else is watching. She doesn't speak of God. But his work in her life shines through the purity of her behaviour. And if that's true of Ruth, then it's even more true of Boaz. We've got a man who's in good spirits from food and drink. And in the middle of the night, he finds himself alone with a woman. He's undoubtedly presented with a moment of sexual temptation. And yet his responses are completely guided by the God he believes in and follows. He begins by asking the obvious question, who are you? But I wonder if you notice the next words on his lips in verse 10. He refers immediately to God. And he says to Ruth, the Lord bless you. He's a man who walks closely with his Lord. He's got thoughts of God and concern for others on the tip of his tongue, even when he's startled in the middle of the night. He could have succumbed to temptation. He could have been so shocked that he self-righteously shouts, What do you think you're doing? Get out! Instead, he very gently calls her, My Daughter. He responds with understanding. I suspect I'm not the only one here who's not at my best if someone wakes me up in the middle of the night. It takes someone who habitually thinks thoughts of God on awaking to respond, as Boaz does. Recently, as part of reader training, I had to follow the prayer practices of a Benedictine monk which meant saying set prayers seven times a day. The prospect sounded totally daunting. But one thing I have taken from that is just the benefit of having words of adoration on your lips to God the moment you first awake. Somehow it just sets your thoughts on God and puts everything in the right perspective at the very start of the day. Boaz has God's word close to his heart. His relationship with God is ever-present. And as we look at his subsequent actions, we see that in practice. His integrity continues to be there. He explains that there's a kinsman-redeemer... With a closer claim. I wonder if earlier we get a hint when he sees Ruth's actions as a kindness that actually he was already attracted to Ruth. If that's the case, then he's showing total self sacrifice when he says, actually, there's someone else who has got a closer claim to marry you. I need to do things properly. I need to follow God's law. I need to follow the customs of the day, even though there may never be the opportunity for me to marry you. He trusts that if it's God's plan, then God will overcome the obstacles. And then we see his concern for Ruth's safety. He lets her stay the night rather than, than face the dangers of a dark Bethlehem night with no streetlights as she wends her way home. The name of God is once more on his lips. He protects her reputation as he allows her to slip away unnoticed. And we see his sheer generosity as he gives her six measures of barley. He is, as chapter 2 tells us, a man of extraordinary character, whose actions reflect the very kindness of God himself. So if we go back to that original question, where is God? The answer has got to be surely that we see his presence in the lives of his people and especially in the total integrity of Ruth and Boaz. God is revealed in his people. And his hand is there too, guiding the outcome. If you have a look at verses 16, 17 and 18, the last three verses of the chapter, we can see his hidden hand. Naomi says in chapter 1 that she went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. There's an echo of that in verse 17, which tells us that Boaz didn't want Ruth to go back to her mother-in-law empty-handed. Yes, we're left on that cliffhanger, but somehow we know that God is at work. He's transforming emptiness to fullness. Through the actions of Boaz, yes, but through his own faithfulness to his people. And he's there at a deeper level too, transforming emptiness to fullness. Because as we'll discover as we read on in the book of Ruth, it's not just a story about one man and one woman, one Jew and one Gentile. God is there behind the scenes guiding his whole plan of salvation, a plan that includes all men and all women, all Jews and all Gentiles. A plan that makes it possible for you and for me to experience life in all its fullness. And so we may read the book of Ruth and ask the question, where is God? But if we've got eyes to see, is there? I wonder if you're sitting there today thinking, where's God in my life? Where is he in the world today? Then ask him to open your eyes so that you might see he's already provided your very own kinsman redeemer, his son Jesus. He became one of us, he gave his life, as we'll remember later. Why? To transform you from emptiness to fullness. And for those of us who are Christians, people will look at us and they'll ask that question Where is God? They look at our lives. They listen to the words on our lips. They watch us in those moments when we're most vulnerable, when we think no one else is watching, when we're feeling tired. And yet, all of us know, even though Christ's death makes us holy in God's sight, we're not able to live completely holy lives day by day. But the Bible does assure us that when we give our lives to Christ, he begins a process in us, a process that transforms us into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. No, of course it's not something we can ever achieve on our own. It's something that's never complete on this earth. It requires us to store God's word in our hearts, to pray that the Holy Spirit might produce in us the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Archbishop Temple once said, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet's or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like this. And if the Spirit could come into me, then I could live a life like his. When those around us ask the question, where's God? May they see Christ Jesus in us by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The band are going to lead us in a time of quiet, prayerful reflection. Let's use that time to open ourselves to God and to pray that his Holy Spirit might transform our lives day by day.